Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another show. Uh, Cody, this is this is one of those shows that I feel like will get lost in the shuffle of everything that's happening every 24 or 48 hours in these NBA playoffs. We're finally recording here on a day off. We're going to have every other day in the conference finals. We're going to have the NBA finals. We're going to crown a champion. There's going to be narratives galore. There's going to be legacy talk. But I just want to, oh man, we're at the midpoint of the playoffs. And I just want to, you know, get out our basketball pipe and and smoke it and talk about what we've seen, what's going to happen going forward. I love I love this part of the playoffs because we, as we'll talk about today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about what we ha- saw in the second round that closed out over the weekend. I have some thoughts on some of the games and some of the series. We're going to preview the Eastern and Western Conference Finals. We're down to the Final Four. But... Before we get to the preview, I also just want to stop and reflect on like how we don't know who's going to win the NBA championship right now. We don't know what's going to happen. We have at least a couple great series left on the horizon. I'm salivating over this Anthony Davis, Nikola Jokic, immovable force meets an unstoppable object. Did I flip that phrase? Who cares? You know what I'm talking about. Um, Just the defense, the offense. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. We'll talk about it. But but the thing that fascinates me about this point in the playoffs is how in a month, and especially in a year or two years, everyone's just going to look back and they're going to be like, yeah, we know all those teams in the conference finals. They weren't worthy. And the Lakers were too old and the Nuggets didn't play enough defense and the Celtics were what, you know, the coaching change did them in. Whatever. What, when a team loses, there will be some reason that we knew that they were going to lose looking back and it's just to me it's more like we've got great competition and any of these teams can win and there isn't always some defining hindsight is 2020 Monday morning quarterback retrospective sweeping narrative arc that we have to give to these teams I just want to stop and recognize that before we go into the cauldron I'm going to sit down and just like critically analyze what you just said because when when you were doing your like fake retrospective you went through three teams and why they didn't win. You talked about the Nuggets. You talked about the Lakers. You talked about the Celtics. Ben, are, are you telling me that the Miami Heat are the sure in to win the championship this year? Is that actually what you're trying to communicate with everyone right now? Is that what you took from that? that that's the only thing that I heard is that this object of chaos, like you said, the immovable object versus an unstoppable force. On the other hand, we get the object of chaos versus the uh, very, very influenced, influenceable object i don't know i'm very fascinated by that series as well but uh yeah i don't know we'll we'll talk about that series i think uh for me at least miami i mean look if i'm being consistent with how we talked about the season all year we talked about the lakers as having this kind of sleepery potential when they put this team well not when they put this team together i didn't watch them the first couple days but once we started watching them we ended up doing a couple videos on them they're a really interesting team the nuggets have been there all year the celtics have been there all year if the celtics let me give you an example if the celtics win 
you're going to hear this sort of, well, of course we knew the Celtics were going to win. Look at their statistical indicators. Their statistical indicators were there all along. They had a top three offense and a top three defense, and their record against top 10 teams was incredible. And even in the, I mean, let's just take the last series against the 76ers. I think everyone agrees the 76ers were a good team all year, even if you don't think they were at, at the inner circle title contenders, as we like to say around here. Um, okay. So it was a close competitive series. It was a seven game series. Again, you can just turn that around and say, what was the point differential the Celtics had in that series, especially with their good lineups? You know, like they outscored them by like 10 points a game or something. So if, if this is the kind of thing that happens, I'm saying that's what you'll get as this like, we knew it all along kind of perspective or we knew it all along fallacy that's what it feels like so it's it's just a fascinating point to stop before we preview the conference finals and i have a few thoughts about some of the last series i want to get to but i i'm just i'm just fascinated by it yeah and as dumb as it sounds that's kind of the magic of following along in real time with the playoffs because you know we spend so much time especially in the off season going back and watching all these games and there's something of like the magic gone like not the orlando magic here but like the magic of of watching basketball and competition gone when you're like watching the 1984 uh Eastern Conference Finals, you already kind of know what's going to happen, and you're right. not like in the narratives, and you don't have time to like breathe between them. And I think that that like ability to breathe and listen to the narrative cycles just adds to the to the whole thing, as opposed to just watching them in isolation. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to get to previewing the conference finals, but I, I had some thoughts on the previous series. First of all. Uh, a lot of discussion about the Warriors dynasty ending and all that stuff. Uh, we won't do off-season forward-looking stuff like that, but I, I do think it's interesting to look at how the players played on that team this year compared to last year. Uh, Jordan Poole, last season in the playoffs, like whatever happens with the rest of Jordan Poole's career, there have been players like this before injuries were involved with him, but like someone like Andrew Tony, who isn't a household name. I mean, he was great for the 76ers in the early 80s and their championship runs. And you can just never really take that away. So Jordan Poole's contributions in the playoffs last year were critical to the team in the regular season when Clay Thompson was out. They were critical to the team providing another playmaker, another shooter. And especially during stretches of the regular season last season, um, his defense was sturdier than I think anyone expected. And this season, peeling all that back and then especially getting to the playoffs and having him struggle immensely, that just took a structural component out of that team's offense that they needed. Similarly, another big structural component, Clay Thompson, he's not, we talked about it earlier in the year, he, he ended up having sort of a, a stabilizing December and January and got going, but it's very hard for them to win if Clay Thompson's shooting three of 19 or whatever he shot, his, his shot was off uh, at the end of that series. Although in other, other games in the series, he shot well. But the biggest one to me for Golden State was Andrew Wiggins. They're a smaller team, especially in the Lakers matchup. His size is so critical because he can play big, he can rebound, he can protect the rim. There's Cody Bingo, a little rim protection right there. And I just thought, as admirable as he was coming back from his personal uh, uh, time off that he ended up taking at the end of the year, he had that broken rib, that that costal fracture rib injury after LeBron shot him in game five. 
And game six, James says, hey, if you're going to play with a broken rib, I'm going to take you into the post and I'm going to grind you into powdered meat cake. And uh, <laughs> Andrew Wiggins really struggled in that game. And I just thought the combination of those things, we were talking about it, I think texting about it in the first quarter. It was like Golden State was almost walking dead unless they had a huge shooting performance from Clay Thompson and Steph Curry. So all that is to say, Cody, it fits into the theme of what I've started this show with today, which is that if a couple of those things go differently and it's like a 3-3 series, if one of those games won or game four that the Lakers won both close games, the Lonnie Walker game in game four, if those flip much the way the Warriors were able to win game four in a close game in Boston Garden in the finals last year, you could have a different outcome in a series because the teams were pretty competitive. They were pretty close. But what ends up happening is you take the winning team, you explain why they were much, much better. Like we all knew the Lakers were much, much better and they trounced them in the end. And that you take the losing team and you explain why they're so terrible and why nothing can go right. And I think the the truth is usually much more in the middle. And I think it's much more nuanced and complex for a team like Golden State, where I thought Steph Curry actually played extremely well and played at a high level for most of the two rounds in the playoffs. But these teams, we talked about Golden State's decline this year. Like the margin for victory, the margin for error, if you will, was not what it used to be for the Warriors. And you got a bunch of close matchups, which to me, what this tournament feels like is a lot of close matchups. That can be the difference. And yet uh, the stories and narratives will will still be sweeping in their Monday morning judgment. Well, I mean, n- not to just be like a complete broken record here and fill out everyone's bingo card, but that that first round series between the Miami Heat and the Milwaukee Bucks, like you have a couple of things that like converge on the same moment that allows that to happen. Like number one, you have a team that's shooting 45% from three that was definitely not shooting 45% from three in the regular season. And then number two, you have the best player on the other team and arguably one of the best players in the league go down with an injury and come back and just like not be back. So all of a sudden we have these two variables that hit completely changes that. We even see, like you said, the, the 76ers and the Boston Celtics watching it in real time there is a possible world that's like not too far away where we're sitting here talking about how the Celtics like completely lost it and the 76ers looked great. So it's strange how that completely flips in that game seven, especially makes you be like, oh my goodness, like the Boston Celtics completely, completely outclassed them. So it's, it's really fun to, to see that and think about all of those, like you were talking about and giving some numbers on Jordan Poole, he scored 23 points on uh, 23 points per 75 on efficiency as 10 points better than league average last playoffs. Like, this is a really good player wow. on a championship-level team. Like, I, I don't think he was very good in the finals. I think that's where it kind of tapered off for him. But this is a dude that contributed to a finals yeah. team, which is can't take that from him, like you said. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, and it's a good segue to the other series that I had some thoughts on, the Celtics and the 76ers, because to your point, Game 6, Philadelphia... I, I, here's where I have to give Philadelphia credit. It'll be interesting to see what happens with their roster going forward. Because I think the idea of the role players 
DeAnthony Melton, even a little P.J. Tucker. I think those guys played well around the stars. And Tyrese Maxey, I mean, Cody, you're, you're 25, 25, top 25, under 25 stock on Tyrese Maxey, is looking pretty good today because he, he had a really nice playoffs. He did what needed to be done both at times when he was the primary on-ball weapon, a little bit of pick and roll, um, stuff like that, but also, hey, I need an option that can attack closeouts, attack on the second side when the defense shifts, and make threes. And he did that at a really high level in the playoffs for Philadelphia. And I think all of that, combined with a pretty darn good defensive series from Joel Embiid for most of the series, right, had had the 76ers a couple baskets away. Like if Jason Tatum bricks a couple threes down the stretch in the fourth quarter of game six. Philly might win in game six. And then to your point, does that change any of the other basketball? Does that change how anyone is as a basketball player? Does it change the offseason transaction moves of the front office? Does it change the coaching quality materially if one player, a couple players make like three or four extra baskets in a game and it flips in the other direction we get to game seven, and I thought, uh, I give the Celtics credit for making the change to go back to Rob Williams, and I give a lot of credit to whoever on their staff, the players, whatever, figured out what we talked about in the video. If you haven't seen the video uh, recapping the end of that series, the Celtics made this adjustment where Horford started to play the pocket pass in pick and roll instead of the ball handler when he was dropping. So it almost looks like a half drop or a fake drop where he's in front of James Harden and he's trying to stay in front of James Harden because why wouldn't you want to stay in front of the guy with the ball? And then he goes, I'm leaving. I'm going back to Joel Embiid. I'm not interested in guarding the ball. That adjustment worked well in game six along with Rob Williams's presence on the court, which changed the geometry entirely for Boston. Uh, And then in game seven, it worked wonders. It really discombobulated the Philadelphia offense, took away that pick and roll game that they have going so well uh, in the middle part of the series. And um, as much as I have to give credit, I also think, man, we could have seen the Rob Williams Time Lord show earlier in this series and we would be back with that 2022 Boston defensive flow. There's a couple things I want to talk about here. So I want to go back for a second and talk about the idea of like a closing door moment because like let's say we end the playoff, not the playoffs, we end the Celtics season after game six, right? Jason Tatum puts up, I mean, I think I was sending to the basketball group somewhere in the third quarter, I was like, this is by far, like by far Jason Tatum's least efficient scoring game in the playoffs of his career. Like if that was where it was going to end, that would be the narrative that carries through. They lost to the MVP, all of a sudden Embiid and, and Harden make it to the to the conference finals. But then all of a sudden, because the Celtics won, how does Tatum redeem himself? He doesn't just have like a 20-point game. He literally breaks the game seven, like scoring. The classic, like, the classic two-week-old game seven scoring record. Yeah, the thing that you can just expect to see. Like, we haven't seen that sort of thing since, like, Michael Phelps just broke his record, like, multiple times in a single year. But it kind of keeps, it reminds me of, like, 2001, right? Where we have Allen Iverson's legacy get carried on because he's able to drag the 76ers team to, to the finals and steal a game against the Lakers. But, like, 
Vince Carter, he hits that three. All of a sudden, the Raptors are moving on to the next round. And instead of Vince Carter being like ripped apart for skipping like uh, or showing up late because he went to his graduation, you know, all of a sudden he's being hailed as the hero because he hits the game winner. And then Allen Iverson can't break a good team because they never make. I don't know if they make a conference finals ever again. Iverson doesn't. So it's interesting to see like how the closing door moment. You just give someone one more game of a sample size. They could drop 50 and all of a sudden change the landscape of their career forever. Yeah, uh, I just want to point out that Cody is contractually obligated to bring up the 2001 Milwaukee Bucks losing to the Philadelphia 76ers at least once a month. Not from me, by the way. Someone in the city of Milwaukee uh, found out he's on this show and they pay him. Right? Do you get paid? Do you get paid money or do you just get like a key to the city? What What is your reward for bringing up the 2001 Bucks regularly? They actually just ship me like a monthly like stipend of wood paneling. So, like, every month, it's like a ship of Theseus thing. It's like, is it the same wall? Because I replace, like, a different board every month. Like, that, that's where we are right now. That's that's a deep cut uh, thinking basketball bingo reference, the ship of Theseus. I think we did an entire episode about that once. Um, Can I talk about the Sixers-Celtics game seven yeah, for a yeah, second? Yeah, please. Go ahead. So, I think the thing that that frustrated me about that game. Like, obviously, Jason Tatum, at a certain point, like, you just got to tip your hat to him and be like, yep, if he's going to hit, like, sidestep threes over Joel Embiid, like, we're just not going to win, right? And obviously, there are some times where you'd, you'd prefer for, like, the center switching out there to be able to stay in front of him, but, hey, Embiid's, like, a 280-pound, 7-foot, like, monster. Like, that's a hard, that's a difficult body to move around. But what frustrated me, and I think it especially relates to James Harden, is that the 76ers played exactly how the Boston Celtics wanted them to play like they played directly into their hand like James Harden was passing off so many times when I think of the video that you just released earlier today or last I don't even know when you released it but there's like clear lanes all the way to the basket if James Harden takes like one more dribble or picks it up and starts going to the rim he could get a layup or at least draw enough defense but instead he keeps kicking it out which is exactly what the Celtics want to do and when you get to like this part of the playoffs when there's these kinds of adjustments the offense has to dictate what's going to happen if you want to beat a defense you can't do what they want you to do and that's what all of game seven was for the 76ers it's doing exactly what the Celtics wanted to do and I you know I'm not sitting here being a coach but like part of me is like I don't know could you have brought like Embiid's man up to do a, a screen first like get a ball screen there so you can get a switch could you do like a Spain action get like a screen the screener cut I, I don't know man like there were so many times I'm like just try try something else like get out of this that I don't know I was very frustrated watching game seven for for Philadelphia fans yeah Harden Harden is taking a lot of heat in addition to Embiid because of this and to me the more interesting thing goes back to some of the stuff we've talked about with Harden over the years in the playoffs and that is counters sort of your adaptability as a player Harden is I've said this a million times, so we're we're definitely hitting our broken record record today. This is a broken record record. <laughs> Harden is a player who maybe is the best player in NBA history at going in the lab and exploiting something. Half the time it's a rule, yes, but it's it's also understanding like, okay, how can I really, really optimize this exact setup in the pick and roll? Like this is the setup, this is the spacing, and here are your options defense. You either give me the lob or pocket pass that I want, or I get to the basket, or if you play it differently, I fall back uh, on my step back, no pun intended. And when you get into the playoffs, if you have something like this come up, 
that is outside of that trained comfort zone, right? It's almost like you're overtrained on a specific thing. He's amazing in those areas. It's given him an incredible Hall of Fame career. He's one of the better offensive players we've ever seen. But that adaptability in the moment might not be as practiced, right? He might not be as flexible or as malleable in those situations. And this was a very specific application of that that isn't about, you know, the Warriors switching and Andre Iguodala doing this and that and hunting Steph Curry. This is like a really weird tactic. It's really weird to see a a drop big man get out of the way of the basketball. That's really weird. Now, that dynamic exists in every possession to some degree because you're recovering. You're, you're dropping, and then the guy recovers. and then So there is a moment of recovery. But what was happening, and if you haven't seen the video, uh, we slow it down in the video, so I encourage you to check it out. It's pretty alarming to me. Is essentially, you have a defender at an atypical time moving out of the way, and Harden didn't see that. Like, he hasn't seen that a thousand times. He probably hasn't seen it a hundred times. He probably only saw it 20 or 25 times or whatever it comes out to in the last two games. And yet, I don't know if he ever guessed right on it, right? Like, I don't know if he ever had the right feel for it. And I don't know if he ever got to a point in that dance where he thought, to your point, Cody, how can I manipulate you back? That's what I wanted to see on the film. Like, where's the play where Harden starts to realize that Horford is doing this, like, bait and switch, on the pick and roll, and Harden goes, I'm going to ball fake you. I'm going to throw you something different. I never really saw that, and I think that to me is the more relevant thing versus just throwing James Harden under the bus and being like, this guy's a choker. Yeah, I, I don't want to say that, but like when we look at the performance, Ben, like it's pretty alarming. Like You could probably make the case, like statistically... That was Harden's worst scoring game of his playoff career. Like, I, I went into the archives, Ben. I climbed up to the tower and was looking through some scrolls to figure this out. So Harden, <laughs> Harden has, out, out of every playoff game where he's scored, or he's played at least 30 minutes, right? He has five games where he has less than 10 points on worse than 40% true shooting. All right, there's five games. Six now, actually, if you include this one. Um, so four of them came when he was with the Thunder, when he was a bench player. All right, so I'm going to give him a little bit of a pass. This wasn't the MVP level James Harden we're thinking about. And then the fifth one was the game when he, or one of the games he comes back against Milwaukee back in 2021. I think it was a hamstring injury. Ben, he couldn't walk. Like, I don't know if anyone remembers that series, but Harden was out there literally just like passing the ball around and just like giving them another body. So we're not even talking about like a player, James Harden. So I think based on that context, it was just like, Nine points on 38% true shooting yesterday. Like, that is, that's beyond the pale for a player that has won an MVP, for a player that we consider to be one of the greatest offensive players ever. So, uh, you know, it's, it is it is frustrating, right? You don't want to, quote-unquote, pile on a guy, but also you would love to see, like you said, some more, some more counters to be able to handle a defensive scheme like that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think this is a good segue to the Western Conference Finals because the Celtics were able to load up and take away some stuff with Joel Embiid, and he's just 
as much as he's improved along the margins, he's just not the level of passer that can torch you when you overload on things like that. The Nuggets have this guy, Nikola Jokic, um, and he is playing at an extremely high level, and he's one of the best passers in the history of the league. By the way, I love I love in videos just dropping the little nugget that he may be the best passer in NBA history because as someone who has studied passing on film for a very long time, I can easily make that argument. Like, it's not even a hard argument to make, but I love dropping that little nugget and seeing all the comments that are like, whoa, you're on crack. <laughs> what hyperbole. And my all-time favorite is like, wow, you've obviously never seen basketball before 2015 to say that. Um, <laughs> Anthony Davis, the Lakers, they've got this great defense. They're enormous. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts on the AD-Jokic matchup specifically But I think my first big question about this series is what lineup are the Lakers going to settle on? Because we go back to what we just said about a few other shots going one way or the other. Darvin Ham has been incredible at taking his team, which is a flexible team. It is a roster with flaws where you have to have trade-offs. If you put Jared Vanderbilt out there, you give up shooting on offense. If you put D'Angelo Russell and Reeves out there, maybe you give up something on defense for some more on-ball and outside shooting activity. So the whole roster is about like moving the tinkering with the parts to find the right matchup against the the opponents. And Darvin Ham has been playing these cards. Uh, This is where I wonder if there's luck involved. Like he just he's like okay. This game, Lonnie Walker, you stay in the fourth quarter. 15 points on like 7 of 7 shooting or whatever it was. He's like, this game, Rui, you will play the fourth quarter. Rui has like 29 points in the game or something. All these players are capable of this. But my question is, and you saw it in the last series, Jared Vanderbilt essentially moves out of the lineup because of the matchups, because of the way the tactics work. It makes more sense to start Reeves and Dennis Schroeder or something. My question is, where do they start here and where do they kind of end here? What what are the matchups that make the most sense for the Lakers? Because uh, I was trying to I was trying to start there with the series breakdown this morning. And I realized, like, I'm not I'm actually not even sure who they're going to start in, in game one. I think what I find really interesting about this matchup, that's that's a little bit different than we'll talk about with the East, is that their construction the way that they kind of throw out lineups, both the Nuggets and the Lakers, is a little similar. Like, they have a lot of these big bodies, right? They have a lot of big bodies, but they don't have, like, backup big men. Like, it's really interesting because neither team's really played a backup big. Like, the Nuggets have kind of had, like, big man by committee minutes with, like, Jeff Green, Aaron Gordon. Uh, who's the other guy? Michael Porter Jr. The Lakers, the other hand, Anthony Davis goes to the bench. You get you get LeBron James. You get Rui Hachimura. Like, these are some big bodies that can kind of play some small ball five. So we're going to get some weird minutes, Ben, when it's going to be, like, these centerless, centerless lineups where it's like, well, the five of Aaron Gordon versus the five of Rui Hachimura. And I think those are going to be some really interesting chess matches. But even when they have their starters out there, both sides have, like, huge bodies along with Anthony Davis versus versus Jokic. So uh, I, I don't know. I guess my point with that is, like, neither team is, like, speedy. Like, they're not going to beat each other with, like, oh, here's this little quick point guard that's going to blow by everyone. You got to stay in front of them. It's just like, well, we have a lot of these big bodies, and we're just kind of 
going to throw them all over the place. Uh, I don't really know what that's going to look like because I feel like it's it's antithetical to how we imagine like 2023 basketball. Like you imagine at this point, it's like, oh, we're going to see Trey Young or John Morant or Shea Gilders Alexander. It's like, nope, you got Aaron Gordon and Jeff Green and and Michael Porter Jr. and these guys. So that's, that's where my mind first goes when I think about this matchup. Do you have uh, an instinct about Anthony Davis guarding LeBron James? I mean, LeBron James, uh, Nikola Jokic. That would be very interesting. Uh, do you have an instinct about that matchup? So when you say that to me, my my first thought is, is Anthony Davis going to defend? Is he going to be the primary defender of Jokic? Because so part- are they going to, what are they going to do? Put LeBron on him? So part of me thinks like, that might be the the Aaron Gordon matchup. Like, he's been all over the place guarding whomever they need to defend. I feel like it's kind of the same way that the Celtics had, like, you know, like, Game 7, you see, like, there's some possessions where Marcus Smart is starting on Joel Embiid or Jason Tatum is starting on Joel Embiid. Uh, first, Tatum, incredible defensive performance, by the way. Uh, but then you get to have Robert Williams just, like, hanging by the basket and protecting the rim. I feel like the Lakers are going to want to do the same thing with letting Anthony Davis kind of roam and, and stay in the paint. Do you, do you think that sounds like a, a way that they're going to play them? Well, so then LeBron would have to guard Jokic. That doesn't sound fun. What did I say? Did I say Did I say Aaron Gordon? Did I say Aaron Gordon's going to guard Aaron Jokic? Gordon, but I, you I assume... So Anthony Davis is going to defend LeBron James. Aaron Gordon's going to defend Jokic. It's going to be <laughs> sorry dogfight football. I did that. I assumed you were talking about the other side of the ball for a second, and you were going to circle back. So this is this is where I'm saying I'm already I'm already false starting on this series a little bit, and this is why I started today's show, Cody, by saying this hindsight 2020 bias is so huge because. It's not even obvious who's going to start to me and how the matchups are going to go and forget where they're going to be by game four. And yet, this is likely a series that swings the impression of these players radically. Like, let's just pause and think about that before anything actually happens. Let's remember this moment. If you're listening at home, sit in the uncertainty. Savor it. Because if Anthony Davis continues to play like he plays... And the Lakers make the finals and even either win a championship or come very close to winning a championship. I mean, that is a massive legacy legacy shifting event in the sense that the bubble was the last time this guy was healthy and looked like this. And he looked like one of the, if not the best player in, he looked like a cheat code. He looked like a cheat code in the playoffs in the bubble and the Lakers stormed to a title this time. The LeBron James, three years later, he's got the foot injury, he's older, it's not the same LeBron James, it's Anthony Davis, everything revolves around Anthony Davis. I think the Lakers, off the top of my head, are about 20 points better with Anthony Davis on the court per 100 possessions in these playoffs. So, uh, and they yes, they are 20 points better and they're outscoring opponents by 9 points per 100, which means they're minus 11 when he goes to the bench. If they were to come out of that sort of battle with him looking like this, that's like two times in a row he's been healthy and two times in a row he's looked like a cheat code in the playoffs. And he would, in theory, have slowed down this offensive machine in Denver and Jokic, uh, which would also add to the credit and sort of the story and narrative there. And then Jokic, it would be like, well, it's a, it's a failure that they couldn't actually get it done against this elite defense. Flip it around, and you go, well, if Jokic wins, then that validates all of his offensive greatness in the regular season and what we've seen in the past, and it takes them to either the finals or a title. 
Dirk Nowitzki style 2011 changes the the sort of impressions there. And then it does the opposite to Davis where it's like, ah, maybe that maybe that bubble thing was a bit of a fluke. It's just it it's like when you look at it through this lens, knowing what's going to happen, it's such a polarizing kind of series. I can't remember immediately a series that has so much fodder for that kind of um narrative driven sort of talk. Well, I think I think that's not even enough discussion about how LeBron James will be discussed. Because I feel like if he has a couple more games like game seven where clearly is able to take advantage of a of a hampered Andrew Wiggins and just game, like game six. Okay. Yeah, what, what did I say? You said game seven. It was the last I, game of the Aaron Gordon's defending Jokic. I think they had a game. Like, do I even know what sport we're talking about? It's I don't know what's happening today, Ben. But yeah, if he has more games like Game Six, like I feel like there's going to be a lot of the airwaves that's going to be talking about him getting another championship for him. And I wonder, I wonder how many people in like the mainstream media will give Anthony Davis his due in this that situation because I think people that were watching and be like, oh yeah, this is definitely on the back of Anthony Davis. But LeBron. Like we just saw, he's able to still pour it in when he needs to, kind of coasting along and letting that sort of thing happen. So uh, I, I think that's a big narrative part of it as well. I'm still looking at this lineup, Ben. You have me stumped on this one. Part of me thinks that the part of me thinks that the Lakers are going to start Jared Vanderbilt again, so he can start on Jokic. Jared Vanderbilt doesn't guard bigs like that. He guards he guards perimeter players. More. I know that. I know, but there's no one for him to like really chase around. And I don't think that they're going to want to get LeBron exhausted or into foul trouble by guarding Jokic right away. So I feel like it's going to be one of those where he sort of starts off on. Him. Why not Anthony Davis? That's the one I feel the most comfortable. I'm like I'm pretty sure when they tip off and go down and set up the matchups, Anthony Davis is going to start on on LeBron. Because the way that I think about it is Jokic is so good at passing and creating for his teammates, and obviously a lot of that is three-point shots. But if you keep Anthony Davis away and by the rim, it takes away some of those passing angel- angles for cutters to get to get layups, right? And so I feel like that's the tr- strategic thing is you want to keep, A, Anthony Davis away from foul trouble, and B, as close to the rim as possible to try and nullify their cutting game. Yeah, I think... I think uh, Jokic would do things to LeBron in the post that are not desirable for the Lakers fans. What here's one meat thing powder? I do know. Yeah, he was, yeah, it would be uh he would put him in the meat grinder. That that's exactly what it would be. The last time these teams met in the playoffs was in the bubble in 2020. The same core is there. Jamal Murray, Jokic, Davis, LeBron James. All the other pieces have changed. Contavious Caldwell Pope Pope now plays for the Nuggets, which might be the the biggest mm-hmm. change of them all. But the Lakers, I was watching some of that and the Lakers were switching everything. And I am not sure if the Lakers will even try that at any point in the series because when it goes back to what you're talking about with LeBron James, um, what other defenders do they want guarding Jokic? Because when you switch on Jokic, he just takes you down to the block. And then the difference between him and maybe every other big man in the league, including what we just saw with Embiid, is he's going to score on you quickly but if you bring a double, he's going to eviscerate you with the double. It's hard to do this uh, double scramble, throw him a different look because he, he seems impervious to looks because he seems to see what's happening before everyone else sees it happening. So I'm not sure we're going to see a switch there. The Murray-Jokic two-man game, of course, is, is so difficult to handle because Murray's small, Jokic is big. So who's guarding Murray? Is it... 
if you're going to play Vanderbilt, would Vanderbilt be on Murray? I'm not sure this is a Vanderbilt series, Cody. Mm. I, I, uh, I, I, and, and it doesn't matter. Who would be guarding Murray that you would want to switch him on to Nikola Jokic? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the answer with this team is, is nobody, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah so this is, this is where I get stuck with it because you make a good point. Like when you think about Anthony Davis being on Jokic, like Anthony Davis can give Jokic some space and still be able to close out on the little catapult jump shot that Jokic has. Like, Anthony Davis should be able to to contain that a little bit. But if you have Anthony Davis away from the rim, I don't know. Are you counting on LeBron as a backline defender? Because we have seen him be able to make some of those reads and rotations just because, you know, he's so good at court mapping on defense. So I don't know. Maybe that's it. Maybe they try and keep LeBron closer to the rim to shut any of those kinds of passing angles down and keep Anthony Davis close to, to Jokic. Uh, I don't know. I feel like that's what they're going to try and do is that if those two are on the court, they have to keep at least one of them by the rim as much as possible. And then I just feel like you have to match Anthony Davis and Jokic's minutes as closely as possible as well. My hot take is that Jokic will be able to score quite well against Anthony Davis one-on-one. Hmm. That That is my hot take. Uh, that is based on both watching those players and then looking at 2022, 2020 film in the bubble and their 2023 matchup earlier in the year, Davis is just an extraordinary defender, and I think his length will bother him at times. You might see a couple block shots and things like that, but Jokic's skill set right now and his size and his strength, I still think he's largely going to be able to do the things he does in isolation. So that's where all the other matchups and all the other machinations and strategies and tactics, like how, how do you want to try to defend the two-man actions and what kind of help are you going to pull over? And that's where all that stuff is just like a, feels like a mystery to me. I don't see a clear, obvious, like, well, they're going to start, they're going to start with this strategy. Whereas I remember uh, going back way, way back in the time machine a couple weeks ago, Warriors Lakers, there were people, and we talked about it, that just outlined exactly how the series was going to start. The exact matchups, the top and drop, the top lock and drop strategy, exactly what was going to take place. I don't have that same clarity with this series. On the other side of the ball, it's a similar thing because the as we've talked about, the Nuggets like to hedge Nikola Jokic. They like to bring him out to the pick and roll that happens you know, 60 times a game, show two bodies on the ball handler briefly, and they have this beautiful coordinated recovery behind the play. They've, they've played so well defensively uh, and, and just the coaching and the, the communication and the continuity defensively has been great for the Nuggets. But do they hedge against this Lakers team? Who's Austin Reeves and D'Angelo Russell and Dennis Schroeder we're running a ton of offense. It wasn't LeBron. They're looking for Davis on switches and posts. D- Davis and Jokic are going to be centers running each other off screens in this series to see what kind of matchups and advantages they can create. Just just chew on that. It's, it's absolute glory. So does Jokic drop? Because we know the Nuggets will drop Jokic. They did that against Chris Paul specifically. They had that in for the last series. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. For the record, Ben, I don't know. I don't think I agree with your hot take about Jokic being able to to score on Davis this season. Excellent, and excellent. The, so you have a hot take that Davis is going to shut down Jokic as a oh, scorer. First of all, first of all, let's let's calm down with the hyperbole there before we start saying some other wild things. But I, I'm basing it on the fact that you know when you actually look 
at Jokic's scoring profile on the thinkingbasketball.net database, what is he at? He's like 30 points per 75 on plus nearly five efficiency. That is not what it looked like after the Timberwolves series. That's not what it looked like after the Timberwolves series. And I think overall, now that I'm like having more of a retrospective on the playoffs, even though we're like halfway through, we can still look back a little bit. Uh, Rudy Gobert did a pretty solid job on Jokic. That's like, my hot take, Cody. I think Rudy Gobert is going to defend him better. He's longer than Anthony Davis, and he's stronger than Anthony Davis. And those things can push Jokic off the spot. Secondly, Jokic had a wrist thing. You don't see that you don't see that issue with the wrist. You don't see that wrap there. And third, he was coming off his his spring of vacation, his uh, little downtime that he and the Nuggets took in the last month of the year to recharge for the playoffs. Because to me, he physically looks sharper in the second round than he did in the first round. So I'm totally with you, but I just think, I think he's going to have an easier time than he did against. It's such a hot take when I, you say it out loud because the I, Lakers are so big and so good defensively. I agree with those premises. I do think that Gobert is stronger. He's better probably at defending one-on-one in the paint like that. But Anthony Davis is is quicker on the perimeter, and I think he's he'll be better at defending on the perimeter. Jokic, uh, defending Jokic on the perimeter. So I don't see some of like Jokic's driving ability, and I think Davis will be able to hang off and kind of defend all of the passing angles a little bit better than Gobert did. And also, like we're talking like bubble Anthony Davis. This Anthony Davis is stronger, right? Right. A lot has been talked about with Anthony Davis bulking up a little bit, and you know I think he lost a little bit of weight since we really had the conversation about him bulking. I think maybe last year or two years ago. Who knows? At this point, uh, but he's not a small dude. Like this is a huge, strong human being as well. And I, I don't think that gap between the way that Anthony Davis can defend somebody one on one and Rudy Gobert can defend somebody one on one in the paint, especially from what we've seen from Davis in the playoffs, is that big. Yeah, no, it's true. I don't think it's that big either. I just, uh, I think Jokic is playing better, and I, I think, I think he's going to be better. That's the, that's the short of it. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I accept that. But I also think that, like, in general, in general, the Lakers also have more size to throw at Jokic than the Timberwolves did, and especially than the Suns did. Because you think about the good defenders on the Timberwolves, like, sure, McDaniels can go on him, but he's not the type of person that you want to, like, throw on, on Jokic, right? He's a guy that you want to put on the perimeter a little bit more. Whereas, you know, I feel like Rui, he's a big body. He's huge. Obviously, like Jokic is is ready for guys like that. LeBron's a big body, huge, excellent hands in the post, and so I just feel like the way that they can rotate out those big guys, you can kind of throw some different looks at Jokic. So uh, I don't know. I I could see a world where the Lakers defend. You know, I'll, I'll actually say it. I think the Lakers are going to defend Jokic better than the Timberwolves even defended Jokic. Oh boy, yes, yeah. this is fantastic. So it sounds like you're forecasting a a Rui Hachimura series. We we're going to see more Rui. We might see a little more. Troy Brown Jr., the big bodies yeah. are going to come back. The, th- the thing is, to me, the Nuggets' offensive system is so good with the shooters. And it sounds weird to say, but I think there's been this misconception around Golden State, largely because of Steph Curry, that they're built like some offensive juggernaut and that they just have shooting everywhere. They've never really had that construction. And we saw it right away in the Lakers series where they started two completely non-shooters in Kevon Looney and Draymond Green, and they realized, like, this isn't really a viable strategy against this defense in this in this league in 2023. We can't have two non-shooters out there. Andrew Wiggins is not a great shooter himself. What the Nuggets have put together around Jokic is 
Good luck leaving Contavious Caldwell Pope, Michael Porter Jr., Jamal Murray. Good luck leaving those guys open. Aaron Gordon is obviously the shooting weak link, but you know when he's making shots even in, in the low 30s, uh, I think that that does its job. Bruce Brown, we've talked about, has improved his outside shot, especially from the wings, that like Bruce Bowen 2.0 corner three-point shooting thing. And most of his minutes off the bench have been great defensively, but Christian Brown, I think, can shoot as well. Jokic can shoot. Jokic is another one of these guys. We've talked about it um, with Jimmy Butler. We've talked about it with some other players before. Anthony Davis' mid-range, where you get into the playoffs and you're like, now, what's going on here? Why are you shooting 50% on your open threes in the playoffs? Do you Can you tune your focus up? Is there like a Reggie Miller thing <laughs> going on? So all that is to say, the system that they have, the shooting that they have, the movement, the cuts, the screening actions that they run. We had some of those in the last video at the end of the Nuggets Sun series on the Denver offense and Jokic and the Murray two-man game. All of those things, to me, are not trivial to defend because it's a combination of shooting, movement, great passing, great isolation scoring option, and size. The last area is if you're not careful, Jokic eats you up like the cookie monster on the offensive glass, right? He's just an amazing offensive rebounder. And the screens that he sets, he sets these Steven Adams screens, and then he's Larry Bird, you know, moving around with the ball. It's really a deadly combination. So... I think there's a ton there uh, that makes this trickier to defend. And I'll give you one more hot take. I'm really in a good mood today with the hot takes. Uh, where are we in the show? Yeah, let's 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 reward the listeners who who oh. listen through deep into the second half of the show. I'm gonna lean in. Part of me was rooting for the Lakers so we could get this Davis Jokic matchup. Part of me wanted that. Another part of me biased. Another, I haven't gotten to the hot take yet. Another part of me was rooting for the Warriors for one specific reason. Because I was going to come on here and I was going to loudly pick the Nuggets to steamroll the Warriors. Steamroll. Steamroll. Yeah. I think what's interesting yeah. is that the war, at least Stephen Curry, and that's not fair because Stephen Curry is just like the poison to everybody's defense. Like, there's just really not any way you can truly defend him well. But I feel like the style that the Nuggets play might have been even tougher to defend Curry. And I feel that, like... That's the, what you think, right. But I think the Nuggets have been planning all year. I think they've been planning all year to to dampen the effect of getting Jokic 35 feet away in a pick and roll. That's I think they've done a great job of building a defense around him that is horizontal and stretchy. Okay. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But I think I was just talking about Curry himself, not the Warriors as a team. Like, I think I agree with you that the Nuggets probably would have won. And, you know, with the Lakers here, I, I don't necessarily know how they're going to exploit the, the Nuggets on offense. I don't know if I screwed that up. I, I'm just, I'm concerned when, about the when Lakers. When the Lakers have the ball. Yeah, when the Lakers have the ball and they're aiming towards the basket and they're trying to put the ball <laughs> into the basket. Because, you know, they're not going, they're not a team that strikes me as like a good pull-up team. Right. And we especially saw with the Suns, like being a good pull up, you have to literally have like two of the best pull up mid range shooters and it still didn't work out for them. Uh, the Lakers definitely don't have guys that can take you apart from from mid range or or even pulling up from three. I don't know. I think I think the Nuggets kind of have this one 
easily wow. than wow. I do. I, I, I do. thought you were leaning the other way based on how you were talking about Anthony Davis there for a second. Let me give you some numbers. In the first round, the Lakers shot 31% from three as a team. They had a 112 offensive rating, hmm. but they outscored the Grizzlies by about eight points per game uh, simply because the defense was so good, right? That's, that's what drives the Lakers, their defense. In the second round against Golden State, the uh, the Lakers. What, what, what I was going to say, the Warriors. I can't even remember the name of teams right now, Cody. You look what you've done. Look what you've done to my ability. Aaron Gordon is guarding Nikola Jokic. We don't know what's happening. Um, the Lakers' offensive rating in the second round was one fifteen, and they shot thirty six percent from three. Now thirty six percent from three on volume in today's NBA. That's pretty good. I think I think that'll win you a good amount of series, especially when you have a good defense. So to your point, in the first two rounds, we haven't seen a sort of high octane, high efficiency Lakers offense. I do have some questions about their outside shooting. Um, I'm really interested to see who KCP guards. I think that's my last big thought on this series. And the Nuggets have Aaron Gordon to put on LeBron. I think that's a really nice matchup for them. And KCP, potentially, he can guard the point of attack. If Austin Reeves is out there starting, you could put KCP on Austin Reeves. And I wonder if you can disrupt him a little bit. Because let, let's we talked about it a while ago. Austin Reeves, on a lot of nights, is like their second or third best player. Let, let's call the spade the spade. He's been really good. He hasn't been good in the this is a bench player who's out of nowhere. Like, no, he's been good. Like, he's been a really good NBA player in these playoffs. And I think if the Lakers have AD going, LeBron playing the way he, like you said, played at the end of the last series, one of these bench play Rui, Lonnie Walker, whatever, and then you have Anthony, uh, Austin Reeves on ball, uh, creating, hitting mid-range jumpers, that could, that's enough for them. I think that could be enough to, to, to get all the way home. And I think, I think about the video you made. I don't even know how long ago you made it. It was about the nuggets and the way they were defending the Suns and the fact that like the skip pass was open and the Suns were kind of being taken advantage of. Cause like Devin Booker maybe isn't the greatest passer and Kevin Durant can, can have some weaknesses when you crowd them up. Uh, ben, you know, like all time, if you were to take someone, that like can make good decisions and make good skip passes and isn't worried about being crowded. It's LeBron James, and so I'm. I'm I thought interested. you were going to say Jokic. Oh, I mean, no, I'm talking about how the Nuggets play defense, though, right? Yeah, and no, so it, if, it's true. If, if, if they play this kind of defense and they're throwing it at LeBron, like you literally have the, uh, you have the master chess master at this point. Like Jokic is the rising chess master, but LeBron's still out there. Like, all right, let's see what defense you can throw because I'm going to exploit it, and he is going to exploit it with his passing because he's just that good. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how they're able to adjust and how he's able to adjust on the fly to see if they're able to run the same schemes that worked against the uh, the Suns. Agree, agree. Um, Cody, this one's just for you. The Lakers, this is on our board, thinkingbasketball.net, for Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. The Lakers are plus two per 100 possessions with LeBron James on the court in these playoffs after 12 games. Remember, they're plus nine with Anthony Davis, they're plus two with LeBron James. They are 13 points better when he goes to the bench. That's mm. I know you like your your plus minus stats just for I, you. I do, but just like we talked about last time, it's a small sample size. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. I could whip out some Jokic numbers like that too. So let's let's relax for a second. <laughs> yeah. um, 
Eastern Conference. Oh, the Eastern best, Conference. The best series. I can't we wait s- to talk about this. We saved the best for last. I, I, okay, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. We have to talk about this series in, a, in an almost existential way before we break down anything. <laughs> I want to say the Celtics are going to trounce the Heat. That's what I want to say. There is an yep. impulse in me to say that for a lot of reasons. Um, four games, five games, whatever that is. But there's a lot of evidence that suggests that the Miami Heat <laughs> are extremely, they're like a one-armed fighter that's hard to hit. They are just incredibly scrappy and resilient and they they muck up the game and Eric Spolstra is a genius. Eric, Eric Spolstra, I want to call him a genius, but I kind of feel like sometimes when I watch him, and I don't know Eric at all, but my impression of him is almost more like a mad scientist. Like, like things are bubbling in his head. He's kind of angry if he can't try stuff. If something if something wild that he wants to do works, he maybe gets happy in a maniacal way. He's like, ha ha ha. He's back in his lab watching the film at night, cackling. He's like, ha ha. I knew I could drop Kyle Lowry and pick and roll coverage. So there's another part of me that's like, oh boy, we better strap ourselves in for a uh, for a tough series. But I just needed to get that existential idea out of the way because it still feels heavily like the Celtics are are much better here. I'm glad that you you framed the conversation around this because I think you're right. The only way to talk about this is almost in like this sort of uh, ephemeral, non-analytic, stats nerdy kind of guy. Because here, here's the key to the series, Ben. Here's the key to the series, all right? When the Celtics stare into the void, are they going to be able to handle the void staring back? Like, when they get, when they get brought down into the chaos against the greatest chaos team that we're seeing right now, are they disciplined enough to not turn this into a mud fight, right? And if they are, if they can handle it, and if they can stay poised and like, no... We're not going to get to this game, Kyle Lowry. No, Jimmy. No, Bam, I'm not going to let you injure every single person here. I think the Celtics are okay. Because when we're talking about just like the, how good either team is, the Celtics should sweep this Heat team. But also, Ben, the Bucks should have swept this Heat team. And the Knicks probably should have won in, in five or six games. So I don't, analytically, Ben, the Celtics should win. I would give them like five games. But it all depends on how poised they stay once Miami goes out there and just makes it a disgusting game of basketball. Are you higher on Miami after the New York series or lower? Because I feel like from talking to you, you're higher. I kind I kind of think so. Okay, okay. Even this, though I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but this is what makes no sense. Um, the Knicks outscored the, the Heat by almost three points per 100 with Julius Randle on the court. And remember, Julius huh. Randle missed the first game with an ankle injury. Julius Randle obviously did not play well. They outscored the Heat by two points per 100 with, with Jalen Brunson on the court. And there were a number of close games in this series, including the Jimmy Butler stands in the corner game one debacle, where it's like, I still kind of think the Knicks, with everything that went on, now they weren't healthy, uh, but maybe they would have been the better team. And yet, as you said, there's something about that series that makes you higher on New York. Uh, I mean, on Miami. Uh, can I also remind you that they played last year and the Celtics were, were able to take the punch and come back and win the series. And this Celtics team is, has been incredibly resilient like that. They're, they're criticized. It's seen as a negative I think by people who have these incredibly lofty expectations of the team that they should just sweep every series they play in. But this is their fifth conference finals 
in seven seasons. It's the fourth in six seasons for this core with the Jays, Tatum, and Brown out there. Um, it's They've done it with three different coaches. They've been behind repeatedly. Jason Tatum has had some crazy big game sevens. It makes me not super worried about the insanity of the Heat. So I, you got to you got to sell me more. You got to sell me more. You got to sell me more on on how they're going to do it. How how, how do they do it? Listen, how do they do it? when I'm selling ketchup popsicles, like there's only so many arguments I can go to, right? There's only so many things I can tell you before you're like, this is disgusting. I'm not taking what you're selling. So if you're if you're just abjectly like refuting the whole they can stay above the chaos. I got nothing else because I don't know. Like I think about the 76ers here, like Joel Embiid, like if we were to redo our defense pod, like Embiid might make my list of top rim protectors in the league. Like that was an incredible rim protecting performance. Overall, I thought that was fantastic. Until game, until game seven. Game I don't know what happened in game seven, but I think the thing that's different now is all of a sudden you have a different kind of defensive big they have to contend with in Bam Adebayo, who you know, admittedly is not nearly the rim protector that Embiid is, but when we talk about going on to the perimeter, like Jason Tatum's not going to be getting by Bam on a switch. Jalen Brown's not going to be getting by Bam on a switch, right? And so I guess, I, I don't know, are, are the Celtics, I think, will be able to adapt and take advantage of a more open lane, but it's going to have to look different because they have a different kind of defensive guy going out there. Like you have Jimmy Butler and, and you have and you have Bam, who are both extraordinarily flexible defensive players, whereas like DeAnthony Melton, who's sort of the flexible player of the 76ers, he's just not big enough to really bother Tatum and Brown, whereas like these other two guys clearly can bother the best players on the Celtics. So if they can muck it up uh, well enough that it forces somebody like, I don't know, Marcus Smart, all of a sudden feels like he has to really take over the game, or Derek White, who's really been struggling. Uh, you sit Gabe Vincent on one of those two guys. I don't know, Ben. I can see a path where it works, but like like Doctor Strange, like I'm sitting here like holding up one finger here. Like there's just there's just not many avenues, but the avenue is there. One the, the uh, Oh man. That's so much. One one finger. I have you ever eaten a ketchup popsicle? What what is going on? Only when I'm wearing white gloves, Ben. Only when I wear white gloves. I don't know if that's a reference to something. I'm just going to move along. Um, so there is a serious question in here, and you were hitting on it. Can the Heat defend in such a way, Butler, Adebayo, Eric Spolstra, uh, Max Struess, Gabe Vincent, can they create something that locks the Celtics down, frustrates them, and maybe you get some bad shooting Celtics nights because that's, of course, uh, when they take a lot of threes and they, they run a lot of five out and they have those shooters out there. That is an option. And in parentheses, as you think about that, will we now see more of the double big Time Lord Celtics that we saw last year? Or will Missoula stick with, I want to have all these ball handlers and shooters and I, there's part of me that wants to call them like the Clippers East, the big, the big Clippers. Let's just get a bunch. Derek White and Malcolm Brogdon and Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown. You guys all go out there and play together, and and they score a ton of points. They've had a great offense. Wh- which of those are we going to see? And can the Heat create something that locks it down? Because that seems to me to be their best best pathway, the the one finger pathway. I'm glad you you brought up Rob Williams because um, my initial thought, Ben, this. This doesn't feel like a Rob Williams uh, series. It doesn't feel like a Rob Williams series. Because if I'm Eric Spolstra, I'm not Eric Spolstra. If I'm like pretending like I'm Eric Spolstra, which I have to go to a really dark place to try and get there. But I feel like 
I would want to pair Robert Williams minutes with Kevin Love minutes. All right, because you don't want to run into this situation where the guy in the weak corner is PJ Tucker. Because if you have someone like Kevin Love that's able to stretch things out, I think that really hurts what the Celtics would be trying to do with keeping Rob Williams to buy the rim because then you're stretching him out with this other guy. So I feel like Miami is going to try and keep it away from the double bigs lineup. I think this might be like a like a Bam, maybe a Cody Zeller. Cody, it is Cody Zeller, right? I get all of the the brothers. You think they're going to play at the same time? No, I don't think they're going to play at the okay, same time. Okay. But I think it's going to be switching between those two as the bigs, as opposed to keeping Kevin Love on the bench until Robert Williams comes in as kind of the counter for that. Because I think I think Miami wants to keep it as small as possible. Yeah, oh, boy, that's so ironic though. You keep it as small as possible and then hope to grind them down defensively. As you've said many times, it doesn't give you too much rim protection. Bam gives you some rim protection. Jimmy Butler gives you a little rim protection from that position. It just feels like a tough nut to crack for me for the for the Heat. I don't even know if the Heat... Like, if you told me, oh, the Heat are going to shoot 42% from three, that doesn't guarantee it still, even with that that good shooting. It, it feels like an uphill battle. Here, let, let me ask you. Let's sidestep it for a second. Will we get a time when both Smart and Lowry flop at the same time when they run into each other. How many yes. of those instances are we going to get? I, I'm, what I'm looking forward to is when someone's running down in a screening situation, Smart has a move which just is should just not be in basketball where he like runs into the guy defending a screen and falls down like he got hit. And Lowry also likes to... Uh, sort of get hit in that situation and fall down. So I think they may do the same move on each other at the same time. It's going to be great theater. It's going to be really fantastic. Uh, yeah, if anything, it's definitely going to be great theater. But, you know, I don't know. Do you, do you think I'm wrong with the small lineup? Because like I said, very small avenue. I'm not saying that this is exactly going to be the victory for the Heat, but I feel like the best avenue for them is going small, counting on trying to to spray a bunch of threes. Maybe Duncan Robinson, Max Struess, Caleb Martin keeps shooting threes well. Maybe Kyle Lowry has a couple of big three games. Jimmy Butler keeps to keep just keeps trucking along. I, I, I think that's kind of the only way the Heat can win it. Okay, I suppose the wild card there is the zone. Miami zones a mm-hmm. ton. We've seen them zone for long stretches. Um, maybe, maybe that's something that could work where you have the smaller lineup on the court. It allows you to get maybe Duncan Robinson minutes that are successful. I mean, the, the interesting thing about the Heat being a poor shooting team in the regular season is that essentially now you're adding Kevin Love and... In many ways, you're also adding Duncan Robinson because he didn't play a ton of minutes during the year. He only he only showed up in like half the games and he was like a 16 or 17 minute per game player. So I suppose it's possible if you got the zone and it bothered Boston that maybe you could get the trade off of getting shooting and playing small like that as well. I'm just concerned about Miami's ability to generate offense they couldn't generate great offense against the Knicks and the Celtics forget the Celtics defense for a second. The Celtics offense is just clearly better in every way. They, they, they've been better all year. Their high end is better. We just had a series where last episode, it felt like they were struggling. I asked you what their offensive rating was. You said one Oh nine and it was one twenty three. Uh, so, so they just operate at a higher bar 
than everyone else, in addition to having players like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown who can explode or go get their own offense. So I'm not sure how viable the zone would be there either. I think all of this all of this is setting up for a Jimmy Butler game one where we revisit this existential crisis after he scores 42 points and shocks the Celtics in the Boston Garden, and there's all kinds of think pieces about how the Celtics are inconsistent and they need to be broken up. I think that's what we're, we, we've put in motion here today. I think the other thing, too, about the Celtics' defense that I think is interesting is the last series against the 76ers, that felt more like a defensive series for their bigs. Like, I, I, I wish we could dedicate this entire podcast to how good Jason Tatum was defensively, especially in those last couple of games. Like, he put on a mass... Like, the one possession where Embiid tries to post him up and he just strips him, I think he, he, he digs on him in another point in the game and just completely strips him. But the thing is, is the Celtics aren't really going to have those kinds of opportunities. Like, the Heat aren't just going to be posting up guys or just, like, here's one guy isolating. It's going to be a lot more movement going on, a lot more different kinds of actions. So I think the guys like White like Smart, like Brogdon, people who are going to be smaller and need to chase a little bit more, I think they're going to be the ones that are more on display defensively. So I think that's going to be a fun shift to see, like, all right, so our bigs are definitely good defensively and can handle somebody like Embiid. Can we handle a little bit more movement and shooting and things like that? And then overall, Ben, like, Spolstra knows that they're just not the better team. He knows that he has a worse team. So I think what... I, I don't know if you have the same feeling. Like, I especially felt it when I was a goalkeeper back in the day. But I hated when there was, like, 10 minutes left in the game and we were up by one. That was my least favorite kind of game to play in because the other team just, like, reckless abandoned. They're trying everything. And I think Spolster's going to come out. He, he doesn't need one or two games to figure that out. He knows it. He's like, well, we got to really throw the eggs at the wall right now and see what's going to stick and, and go from there. So uh, I know the, the Nuggets and Lakers definitely has, like, the star power and will probably be more entertaining in that way. I... I genuinely am just as excited about seeing this series you are he's not lying when he says that <laughs> Cody as Cody might be more excited about the Eastern Conference uh, we I mean you may pass out if the heat come out and play four on five to start the game as a curveball you know, you you may actually ascend <laughs> to another astral plane Th- this actually reminds me of one more thing that I want to bring up before we get out of here there's been a lot of talk about the bubble this week. Have mm. you seen this? Mm-hmm. Yep, because we have the same conference the same, finals, right? We have the same, we have the exact same conference finals in the bubble, which is uh, j- just amazing in many ways. But there's there's sort of this question about whether this validates the bubble and whether the bubble was or was not a fluke or uh, the relationship between these two things. And so, so, so first that was brought up that it's like, hey, the, the, the bubble is totally validated. Same four teams. Here we are. And then the resp- there seems to be a sort of a, a debate where the response is like, well, actually, the rosters are entirely different, right? They're completely different. What a strange connection to make. And to me, I, I actually think I fall somewhere in the middle where I do think there is a relationship and, and some, in my head, a data point that really connects back to the bubble here. And, and I think that's my takeaway is that we saw in 2020... There are things about 2020 that are a very unique season that will maybe never be matched. One, it was a mini season unto itself. There was five months off before the bubble. And then they went to this little place and they did this super pure basketball tournament. And then they basically had no off season and went into 2021. So two, 
there was no offseason for 2021, and we saw all those teams break down and fall apart. And all four of those teams that were in the Final Four in the bubble did not get very far in 2021 when they had that next season at all. But those teams in 2022, the Heat and the Celtics were right back in the conference finals. Interestingly enough, the Lakers were still injured. They still weren't healthy. They still weren't together. Roster aside, the core wasn't there. And the Nuggets core wasn't there. Jamal Murray was injured as well. So now Jamal Murray and Jokic have come back and they're healthy. Anthony Davis is healthy for the first time in 2020. And they're right back in the final four. So to me, there is a connection in that it is yet another bit of the sample where these core players are healthy after not being healthy and performing at a very high level. And that's where I think there is a relationship that that is important to observe versus just we went and did this experiment in Disneyland one time and none of it counts. I guess what's your ultimate takeaway in that sense that like, I, I don't know if we make it really simplified, like these duos that are that are each one of these teams, right? Well, I guess what do the, the Nuggets have? That's not even a duo. I guess, yeah, Murray and Jokic is a duo. So each team has the same duo, the same for all of them. Are you just saying that, like, they're really good duos? Like, yes. is that simplified what you're saying? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, and I think for some of them, it's a little more nuanced because in the case of the Western Conference teams, the, the health matters. Um, and especially with Anthony Davis, uh, I, I do think seeing him look the best physically that he's looked since the bubble and play like this does does start to connect the two. And I still want more data. Sam- the sample sizes in the playoffs are still pretty small, but it, it is something that instead of just looking like this mysterious, like how do I how do I handle that? What do I make of that? Uh, to me, there's a larger connection. But not only have the rosters changed. But this time around, LeBron is no longer in his prime coming off this injury. And I was watching some of the bubble games earlier today. Uh, Jokic is just better. He's just, he just has continued to get better. That was really the tip of the iceberg. That was the beginning of him. Uh, we did a video, I think, called Skinny Jokic, and he came in in shape. And, but but um, it's like, I was like, wait, why isn't he? Why isn't he flipping that shot in? Wait, wait a second. Why didn't he? Why didn't he take that guy down and just drop it in from there? Like he's, you know, he's he's improved and sort of the mastery of the craft looks different now than it did then. It almost feels like a takeaway with all of them is like flexibility is the name of the game. Each one of them, like I think Murray and Jokic, they don't have the defensive flexibility. You can surround them with very flexible players, and the Nuggets have a ton of role players that can just play whatever kind of defensive scheme. But when you think about Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo, Jason Tatum and and, and uh, Jalen Brown, you have Anthony Davis and LeBron James. All of these guys are masters at being flexible in whatever positions. Like Bam Adebayo, you can toss him into any kind of defensive scheme. LeBron can figure out whatever defense you're throwing at him. Genius-level defensive sort of player again. Uh, Jokic, obviously, masterclass offensive player. So when you have these guys that, you know, bring it full circle back to James Harden, that when you throw stuff at them, they can sort of figure it out and adapt in real time. That seems to be the secret sauce to, you know, being a really good core. I'll add one more thing, which is, most of these teams, I mean, some of these teams are lower seeds and most of them were not at the top of the betting odds market to win a title before we tipped off this tournament. But this is the third time in four years when you include the bubble that the Heat and the Celtics have met 
in the conference finals with these cores and some similar roster components, obviously. And it is the second time in four years that the Nuggets and Lakers have met and they've been not at full strength. You know, they haven't even had their their sort of core stars in the two interim years. So when you look at it that way, it it does start to feel like, boy, the four teams that are left are are really good teams and you could see any of them any of the three win a championship. Okay. Let's let's <laughs> relax there. Uh do you have any predictions for everyone? Uh, I, th- I, I am leaning Celtics in the East Yeah, and, uh, boy, Los Angeles is so good. I- I've had the weirdest relationship trying to figure out their series in the playoffs because before the playoffs, I'm like, I think we talked about this. I'm like, I think the Lakers could like make a deep run. They're really, really good. And each series, I'm just like, oh, it's so close. I don't know which way to go. And uh, this is the series where I, again, would will be burned by the Lakers in the sense that I, I'm, I'm again leaning Nuggets. I think the okay. offense for the Nuggets, the offense for the Nuggets right now is, is speaking to me. Yeah. What I got to tell you, Ben, um, I've predicted wrong in every one of the Heat series and every one of the Lakers series so far <laughs> this playoffs. And I am going to continue on this route. I, I do think the Celtics are, are going to win. I think it's going to be like a five game series. I just, I don't see that Avenue happening. Um, and then, yeah, I think that Nuggets-Lakers series will be a little bit more competitive, but uh, the Nuggets are on some kind of roll. Like, when, when you go back historically and you see some of these players that just, you know, I think back to, like, the 94, 95 type of Olajuwon-type runs where you just see this guy that's just, like, inspired by demonic hellfire. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just they're they're going to go through you all. So, I don't know. I'm leaning Nuggets. Plus, they have Contavious Caldwell Pope now, which is oh, of the... Course. Absolutely. Yeah. If you want to support this show, patreon.com slash thinking basketball is the best way to directly do it. That's where we have the stats board that updates regularly throughout the season and now the playoffs, which is it's fun. I always compare playoff and regular season. I toggle back and forth to kind of see how things change between the playoffs and regular season. We also have a, a monthly Q&A in our Discord community, which is a lot of fun uh, and a ton more. Patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Thanks for listening to this one and the next time we talk we will be in the midst of the conference finals i cannot wait i am absolutely salivating for this Jokic anthony davis matchup and um, i'm ready for a, a jimmy butler explosion in game one from the miami heat uh, thanks thanks as always for listening thanks thanks for all your support and kind messages by the way lately uh we try to see as many of them as we can and it's been um, it's been it's been really not only nice to hear and really fun, but it makes this a j- more joyful experience when people listening share their excitement and enthusiasm for what we do. So we really thank you uh, for all that support, and of course, we hope you're having a great day. Mm-hmm.